This is Memorial Day weekend. And God, in His mercy, has not given me an appreciation as full and complete as many American families have had of the meaning and the difficulty of Memorial Day. And in their honor and in the remembrance of those who died, I'd like to read to you with His permission testimonial first written two years ago by a veteran I know and love, respect deeply. Ross Pate enlisted in the United States Army just a few months ago, retired after 20 years of service as a chief warrant officer. He served in the 75th Ranger Regiment, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, as well as the 82nd and 101st Airborne. That's why two years ago, on a rainy Memorial Day in the Southeast, he wrote this. Seems like barbecues and Memorial Day simply go hand in hand. It's that magical time of year where the weather is ideal. It's just warm enough to wear a t-shirt and shorts, but not quite hot enough to really break a sweat. Perfect barbecue weather. Maybe it's petty, but as I sit here writing this post, I'm enjoying the rain. It's not that I don't want people to enjoy the long weekend, I do. It's not that I feel like shaming people who forget what the holiday's about. I don't care for those types of people's opinion anyway. I'm simply being selfish. Outside, the clouds are gloomy with a petulant, half-hearted rain, and it just feels right. During Memorial Day, when some people think about arbitrary sacrifices that were made, I think of Jose, Talia, Jason, Rob, Kevin, Jonathan, Martin, Anthony, Kenneth, Aaron, and others. They aren't concepts. They are people. Friends, sons, brothers, and fathers. Some of them have kids growing up that barely remember them as more than a picture, and I miss all of them. Sometimes rain just feels right. Will you join me in prayer, please? Lord, many, many families across this great country that you've blessed in so many ways understand those sentiments, that some days rain just feels right. I pray that you'd bless them and give them your grace. I pray for the families who are, will be, have a fresh experience with grief tomorrow as they remember and look at the empty chair. I pray that you would be near to them, that you would heal broken hearts, and most importantly, that you would send into those needy lives loving, faithful, kind people who would bring the grace and the name of Jesus with them so that they would meet you, Jesus, who alone give eternal life, perfect hope, and heal all hurts and dry all tears. You're told, we're told over and over in your word, and we're given examples as well, of remembrance. We're told to give honor and respect to whom it is due. So today we thank you for their sacrifice. We ask that you would comfort and love their survivors, and that you would all use all of that difficulty and all of that, Lord, for your glory and their good as they encounter the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name I pray, 
Amen. I have a big topic for you this morning. One of the signatures that the Bible is the Word of God is it is absolutely true to life. It doesn't make any effort of whitewashing the brutal realities of life. Instead, it lays them open. It explains many times why they happen, and it points to the spiritual realities that underlie what you and I live through in our day-to-day experience. Today, we're going into Psalm 73 to talk about a topic that I've taught often before, though it's been many years now. When I first became your pastor about 12 years ago, without apology, I went several years, once a year, to this psalm. If you want to find it in your Bibles, it's Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to help yourself to one in the seats near you. Your Your neighbors won't mind if you ask, and I promise Unless you're just a super hard-wired digital native, it'll be easier on paper than it will be on this tiny screen on your phone, okay? The Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. They are the songbook of Israel. Today, we hear a confession from a psalmist named Asaph. He was appointed to help lead the people in worship. God used him, and it had used him in the past, to give expression to the truths and the praise of God. The Psalms, perhaps more than any other book, lay open the full variety of human experience. There are Psalms of lament where the psalmist cries out to God in genuine heartbreak and wonderment because he doesn't understand why he's suffering, and he's begging God to intervene and help. There are other psalms that are pure joy. Psalm 73, if you run your eye across it, is a long psalm, and one of the reasons for that is it is a wisdom or a teaching psalm. It was intended to do what good hymns do to this day, to teach people truth about God even as they read and praised God through His own Word found here in the psalms. And Asaph would, I think, rather not have written this psalm because it is a personal confession to God. He's going to turn and speak to Israel, but primarily his thoughts and his heartbreak are directed to God Himself. He'll tell you from the beginning that he ended up in a very good place, but only, go, only through going through very dark times and very dark thoughts. And what made life so difficult for Asaph was he had become a victim of bitterness. I was very intentional in going back to this psalm once a year for several years when I became your pastor. At that time in our church's life, it was my feeling that many people were dealing with resentments, and I'm aware on a week-to-week basis that the reality of life as it is and as mean as other people may be, not you, of course, but other people can be terribly mean, We all deal with bitterness and resentment. And I'm telling you about this because in my personal experience, three generations in ministry now and over 20 years not only serving but just every day living through the local church, it's my firm belief that unresolved bitterness ruins the joy of more Christians than just about anything. That includes Christian leaders. For every pastor you might meet or read about in the paper who does something shameful like take some of the money and run away with one of the women, 
who becomes a caricature, an object of mockery, and thereby ruins himself and his family and ministry. There are hundreds more who will never do anything so embarrassing and wrong, but they're bitter. They're quietly disappointed with God. They're quietly resentful of their congregations. There's all kinds of reasons that people have given them to be resentful, tired, weary, cynical, jaded, or as they are more likely to call it, realistic about life. And they carry with them every day a bitterness that slowly chokes their life and people who are near them, it poisons them too. That's where Asaph is. Read with me in Psalm 73, verse 1. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. What went wrong, Asaph? You're telling us that God is good, that He actually is good to people who are pure in heart toward Him, but you almost stumbled, your steps nearly left the path. What happened? Verse 3, he tells you, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What Asaph is having a hard time with is this question, why do good things happen to bad people? You ever wondered? There are two difficult questions. One is so common that a book was written by that title. Why do bad things happen to good people? The Reverse question is just as troublesome. Why do so many good things seem to be happening continually to bad people? He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw the life and the blessing of people, God, who take, don't take you into account, who have no use for you, who have no room for you, and their life is good. And as he's going to go on to tell you, my life has been miserable, and I was troubled by it. Read his confession. It's long. It begins in verse 4. Speaking of bad people, Asaph says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Confident in their success, they mock God. Look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. In other words, they blaspheme God, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. In other words, good people are watching all this and saying, well, perhaps that is the way to live. Perhaps they really will get away with it. Perhaps in serving God, I've made a wrong choice. And they, the wicked, say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? This is the attitude that says, and I've actually heard these literal words, God can stop me anytime He pleases. God doesn't care. He doesn't know. He's not dealing with any of this. Asaph says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Here's the heart of bitterness. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's poetry. 
Let me give you his meaning in plain English. God, it doesn't seem to have done me any good to serve you. I've kept my heart pure, I've kept my hands clean, and I have nothing to show for it. You ever feel that way? Jesus invites people to take up their cross, follow after him every day. It's a hard path. Resentment asks the question, hey, is this worth it? You see your neighbors, you see your coworkers, the ones that mock you, the ones who think you're a little crazy for believing any of this. See how comfy they are? Have you seen their Facebook, their Instagram? Boy, they got a good life. You're crying yourself asleep. You don't know where to turn. You don't know where rescue's going to come. Apparently, God doesn't know, and God doesn't care. Asaph says, I've really been wondering, God, whether it's knowing you has been worth it at all. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's bitter. Bitterness is a killer. It takes an opportunity every time you're disappointed with people, every time you're mistreated and injustice is not immediately made. You stand at the crossroads between resolving that with the truth of God, which Asaph is setting out here to teach us, and growing resentful and bitter instead. Bitterness harms us in a lot of different ways. The first thing it does is it captivates your thoughts, and eventually it will move over and change your actions. All the way from verse 4 to verse 14, Asaph is pouring out his bitter heart. He's given this a lot of thought. He's had a lot of anxious nights to think about his life and how it's working out and the relative prosperity and blessedness and apparently complete absence of trouble with people who don't take God into account at all. Their life appears, frankly, at this point to be much better, and it's winding him up tight in the cords of bitterness. Another thing that bitterness does is it ruins your relationships. Look in verse 15. He begins to tell you how he came out of this moment. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, God, I held all of this in my heart, and I'm only telling it to you. If I had said this out loud, if I had said what I believed was true in a psalm, if I had spoken to the people who trusted me to lead them in worship, I would have betrayed everyone listening. See, that's the thing with bitterness, and one reason it creates a doom loop is once you become bitter, everybody around you can taste that. And the people who are healthy enough will back off and taste that bitterness in your life. It's, oh, man, sour person. Not going to talk to them too much anymore. And the people who are more readily infected because they're already bitter and resentful themselves, they'll come around you, drink it up, and you'll have a that's right party. And after a few months or after a few years, you'll just have this angry, resentful little knot of people for whom life is terrible and everybody else is an idiot. Do you know any groups like that? So here's the thing about bitterness. The starting point, Asaph is telling me, is you have to admit it. 
And that is incredibly difficult because bitterness is one of those embarrassing traits, one of those embarrassing sins that we are quick to see in others but very reluctant to admit in ourselves. I'll prove it. If I said this morning, would all the people in this third service please stand up? All the bitter people, please stand on your feet. Think anybody would stand up? Nah, just be me up here, which is why I'm not doing it. I don't want to give you the satisfaction leaving me up here all by myself. Bitterness is readily seen in others, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves. What bitter people say is, I'm not bitter, I'm realistic. Careful with that, you'll ruin your children. You say things like this, well, that's nice, buddy, but when you get to be my age, you'll understand things that you don't understand now. That kills dreams. That chokes hope. That gives people not the benefit of wisdom and experience, but it actually gives them the liability of resentment and bitterness and disappointment that is passed from one generation to the next, and it very quickly destroys happiness. Asaph said in verse 14, all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, God, my entire life, morning to night, has been one continual parade of suffering. Now, I know this is poetic, but I also know that cannot possibly be true. But that's what bitterness tells you, that everything is against you, that everyone is wrong, everyone is foolish, everything is wicked, nothing left in your life is worth enjoying or actually can be enjoyed. That's how bitterness works. That's how it chokes the joy even out of Christians who refuse to deal with it humbly in the truth of God and allow instead it to wrap themselves around their heart and kill off their joy. I don't want to tell you too many stories, but there's several good reasons in my lifetime why this topic is so important. I've seen what it did to people, and in a very small way that pales in comparison to the suffering that many of you have endured. And I'm not comparing it. I'm only telling you this story by way of illustration. I had my first good taste of it my freshman year in Bible college. Pastor Jim and I went to the same Bible college, and it was as close to a pristine spiritual environment as the heavy-handed administration can make it. We had to wear ties, we had to carry big Bibles, we had chapel services which required not only a tie but a coat. We were only allowed to sing certain kinds of music. I mean, we were a holy bunch, I am telling you. And you'd think in a place like that you could relax and enjoy because you were among like-minded people, but I discovered that wasn't so. I had come from Mexico with no car to Southern California, which I quickly learned was a liability, and God and His goodness moved on one of the members of this church to loan me a beautifully clean, sweet, reliable old car that I could use for as long as I wanted, and he would bear the cost of the maintenance. I just had to put the gas in it. Then I got myself a really cool job tending the cash register at the Lamps Plus in West Covina, making the head-spinning amount of $5 an hour. In my innocence, not knowing who FICA was, I worked for one, I worked for two weeks and multiplied number of hours worked times five dollars and thought I'd made the big bucks until the government took its portion, and then that was a whole other story. But my first paycheck, I'll never forget it, netted me 115 bucks. 
That's why when one of my fellow Bible college classmates stole all the money I had a few weeks later, which was the amount of $100, made me hate him. Mike eventually got caught and expelled because he was stealing from a lot of other kids. But resentment against him, the audacity and the stupidity of a theft, even something that small, really started to bother me. Every time I reached into my wallet to pay for something, I would take what money I had and I would think to myself, if it weren't for that idiot, I've had a hundred bucks in here. And it wasn't true. That went on for months. I would have spent it a long time ago. But I started to do a slow boil against him and wish things upon him that were way out of proportion of the theft of $100 and getting kicked out of college. That's how resentment works. Resentment allowed to fester in your life won't even allow you to enjoy what you have and worse. Once it's in full bloom and completely that little root takes over your whole life, it will move between you and God. Look down in verse 21. Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. He says to God, I was like a beast toward you. In other words, God, I was so wound up in resentment seeing how bad people were doing well that I didn't even have the spiritual, I was like an animal in your presence. I had no spiritual sensitivity. I had no openness. I could not learn anything from you. That's what bitterness does. And the place you start to be free of it is you have to admit it, and that's hard. A lot of people will resist this initial step and won't move toward freedom and won't move forward in love because they refuse to admit that they're bitter. Read James 3.14 with me. James counsels this. Read it together with me right off the screen. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. If you're bitter, if there's bitter jealousy, if there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't be proud of it. Don't justify it. Own it. Admit it. And then you begin to do what Asaph did here in the first half of this psalm. You confess the sins that you committed by allowing, by harboring bitterness in your life. And again, as we walk toward freedom, as we learn from the teaching wisdom of this psalm right here, a lot of people have a tough spiritual checkpoint because they say, wait a second, we're talking about sins committed against me. Why am I the one doing the confessing? Because bitterness costs you a great deal. Bitterness wrapped around your life eventually moves from the white hot anger that you feel in your heart, it settles into your stomach, it becomes cold there, you move it out toward other people, and eventually if God doesn't do what you believe is right in the time you think is right, you eventually start to resent Him. And that piercing pain in your heart that justice is not done puts you in the presence of your heavenly Father with the sensitivity, not of his child, but Asaph says, of a beast, of a creature that cannot be reasoned with. 
This is the end stage of bitterness. This is what bitterness at the end looks like. And I can tell you I've seen it too many times. I've seen it candidly in Christian leaders, some of them publicly admired and quietly seething with resentment against their families, their spouses, their children, their ministries, their congregation, God who will not make things right in, their, in this country as they think He should. You would not believe the laundry list of resentments and disappointments unless they are resolved. Bitterness will take up space in your life and it will change you. Secondly, you do what Asaph does next. He's going to tell you how clarity came into this situation, how light finally pierced the darkness of his bitterness. What he did was this, what we should do. You entrust your cause to God, the just judge. Look in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Yes, it does. You watch the news, you stay, a pra- you stay up to date on current events, you stay in touch with your entire family, you work closely with people at work, you actually know what's going on in people's lives and how laziness and evil and frankly sometimes criminal monstrosity seems to go unnoticed, unchecked, and unpunished. To make sense of that kind of brutality, that kind of mistreatment in the case of some of you who were abused at an early age, that kind of horrible, horrendous sin and injustice, to understand it is tiresome. It wears you out. It leaves you, according to your understanding, with the idea that there are no answers. But Asaph says, when I thought out to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In other words, Asaph says, I was seething with resentment toward bad people because I was only looking at the present moment. When I went back into the fellowship and the worship of God, God opened my eyes that their life at this moment in their wickedness is not the end of the story. Asaph says, you showed me at that, you showed me in your sanctuary their end, their destiny. Here's what happens to the wicked who do not turn away and turn back toward God. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In other words, their dream life turns into a nightmare the moment God decides to rouse Himself and do what He will never fail to do, which is what's right. Asaph only understood that when he had a personal encounter with God Himself, he heard God's truth and he was able to turn his cause and these wicked people over to God. The best example of doing this, of course, is Jesus. See, the reason bitterness is so real for so many people is bitterness always has this power over us. When you are genuinely mistreated, you will know in your heart that is not right, and the power of it is you'll be right. You'll be 100% correct. 
what people did to you in walking out and betraying you, in giving you abuse when there should have been love and loyalty, in returning to you kindness and compassion and mercy where you gave it so many times to them, in breaking their promises to you which they had an obligation to keep. You'll think to yourself, it's not right that they're doing this, and you're right. And your inability, my inability to understand that opens the door for bitterness because I want justice to be done. Well, when you're mistreated, how quickly would you like justice to be done? Immediately, right? Hopefully, they'll be incinerated right in front of you, right? And you'll help clean up the ashes. And that'd be nice, right? With a knowing look to the others, this is what happens. Watch your step. But justice is delayed. And they get away with it. And they get newer and bigger and better things, and you continue grinding along as you always have with no relief in sight. What do you do? You do what Jesus did. You entrust yourself and you entrust your cause to God, the righteous judge. Jesus did that every day of his life. And he did it most of all at the crucial moment on the cross. I want you to hear Peter's testimony. First Peter chapter 2 tells the story. Only Jesus fills out this description. Look, Peter, an eyewitness of the suffering and the death of Jesus, says of Jesus our Lord, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. Not one person on earth can fill out that description except Jesus. The person you most love and admire cannot, it can never be said of him or her that they have committed no sin, that no deceit was ever found in their mouth. That's Jesus. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but did something different instead. Read the last two lines with me. Here's what Jesus was doing all his life, and here's what he did the final hours on the cross. It says, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That was a vital moment in your salvation. There's no point in me going into great detail about the horrors of the Roman crucifixion. But the false trial and the brutal death of Jesus was the greatest injustice that will ever be seen on this earth. They killed the Prince of Glory. They killed the man who alone is life, truth, righteousness. Love, mercy, compassion incarnate. They killed him and laughed and mocked him and spit on him while he died. What was Jesus doing during those vital hours? He was not returning insult for insult. When he was suffering at their hands, he was not threatening them. In fact, he was saying things like this. Maybe you heard this saying from the cross. Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them because what? They don't know what they're doing. Father, these men personify sin. They're as cruel as any human being ever has been. At least forgive them this much because they don't understand the magnitude of what they're doing against me and against you. What was Jesus doing? He was entrusting himself in that moment to the one who judges justly. When you do that, you'll never be more like Christ that when you suffer mistreatment and abuse at the hand of others and you turn those people to God and say, God, you know the truth. A lot was on the line. Look at the rest of the verse. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was taking my sins because he had none of his own. He was taking your sins because he had no sins to pay of his own. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we, his disciples, Christians, might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. At any moment, if Jesus said to himself in complete truthfulness, this isn't right, Father, stop it now, you and I could not be saved. Peter, the man who gives you this testimony, clumsily tried to defend him and ended up cutting a man's ear off. And Jesus told him, put your sword away. I have thousands upon thousands of angels who will be sent in a moment to defend me. At any moment on the cross, Jesus, the righteous one with no wickedness in his heart and no deceit ever in his mouth, could have said, Father, enough, stop this, send them. And you and I would have no hope on earth and no hope for heaven. But he stayed on the cross for the sake of the people he would save by doing one simple, continuous, sacrificial thing. He continually entrusted himself to the righteous judge. When you do the same, you begin to loosen the bonds of bitterness in your life. The third step out of bitterness is not anything that Asaph can teach you. You actually need the grace of Jesus and the power and the mercy of the New Testament to understand this. Asaph finds relief and peace only knowing that the wicked will not always triumph that their good life in disregard for God and in cruelty to others is only temporary, and that is enough for him. In the New Testament, in imitation of Jesus, we're told something bigger, more gracious, more liberating. We're told in the name of Jesus to forgive the people who have hurt us. And this is so difficult that I need to tell you honestly, there are even some Bible teachers who don't agree with this. They've said, you have no right to forgive people unless they ask for your forgiveness. Don't proactively forgive anyone. I understand why they reason that way. You see, proactively forgiving someone, especially if they have not sought your forgiveness, doesn't seem right. It seems to break the natural cycle and the natural result of justice. People hold on to bitterness in their heart because they believe, mistakenly, if they forgive the other person, they're getting away with it. May I suggest to you that they will get away with it only for as long as God wants, regardless of what you do? I have a practical objection to people who would say that this is not biblical or not necessary. A practical and a biblical objection. The practical one is this. What if these people who have really hurt you and wounded you never come back and ask for your forgiveness? Are you really going to hang on to resentment for the rest of your days? Having dealt with a very, very, thank God, small number of people who could reasonably be called sociopaths, in other words, people who have no natural empathy, who are indifferent to the suffering of others, I can tell you there are some people in the world who will hurt you and never look back nor even remember what they've done. 
You wait for them to come back to you, you'll wait for the rest of your life. Be even more practical and conclusive than that. What if this person who wounded you so deeply has already died? Will you really wait for an apology from beyond the grave that cannot possibly come? No. You see, forgiveness, letting them off the hook, not with God because you can't do that, but letting them off the hook with you is the only thing that will liberate you from the evil that other people have done to you. The effect of bitterness is sometimes with deep-rooted things, you think you're done and years have passed, but something is remembered or some loss is experienced that takes you all the way back to the moment you were victimized and you were hurt, and right there you are again. You're 14 years old again. You're getting fired again. You're getting cheated on again. You're getting lied to again, and it's just as fresh and real as the day it happened. And so long as you don't bring that to God and let let them go in the name of Jesus, they'll have you anytime those memories come. This is how Jesus taught His disciples. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Read that with me. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the heart of the Christian. Forgiveness is a disposition, an ongoing attitude that you carry with you every day, and it is also a sacrificial, loving choice where you say to the other, regardless of their availability or their will, I am letting you go. I'm taking you off the hook and turning you over to God. And someone will say, well, Bruce, you may be a pastor, but you're not being fair with the Bible because that verse is written to Christians about Christians. Well, maybe. Can I remind you how Jesus taught His disciples to pray? Look at Matthew 6. Read that with me. Jesus taught us to pray in this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Without conditions, without groups, or without clauses. We see bitterness in our life. We confess to God first how it has made us distant from Him. We entrust that cause to Him, and in the name of Jesus, we turn those people over to Him. What, that, what might that look like? It might look something like this. When you're reminded and you feel the pain, you resent the difficulty, you resent the new set of circumstances that the wickedness of another person has left you to deal with, maybe for the rest of your life, you turn to the Lord and you say, Lord, it's me again. And I've been reminded, I got another letter, I got another bill. I suffered more want and lack. I remember what they did. Here's how it hurt me. Here's what it's costing me. And God, I want justice done. I would rather you take care of this right now, but I am turning them free in the name of Jesus. In your name, because you forgave me, I'm forgiving them and I'm turning them over to you. Here's the thing. You may proactively forgive others, but everyone on earth someday will have to deal with God. You may cancel the debt that they have with you. They still have to face the judge of all the earth who always does everything right. 
And every person on earth, including you and me, will receive from God one of two things, the justice we so richly deserve or the grace and mercy that Jesus died to give us. And I assure you, if you knew the severity of the holiness and the justice of God, I sincerely doubt that you would wish all of it upon anyone, regardless of what they've done to you. Either way, you're off the hook. They're in God's hands. Asaph closes with a statement of praise. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, God, I became senseless in your presence. In my bitterness, I didn't have any more spiritual insight than a dog, but I stayed with you because you held on to me. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and after you were, you will receive me to glory. You will give me wisdom through this difficulty on earth, and afterward, you'll take me home with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That last line is poetic in Hebrew. He says, God, you're the rocky summit to which I can flee. I can get away from all this by finding strong refuge in you, and I've been impoverished, and the wicked have cost me many things. They've enriched themselves and used their violence and their arrogance like clothing and jewelry. That's how boastful and proud they are. Their tongue walks through all the earth asking everybody if there really is a God who can ever stop them. I've seen all this, but here's what I have concluded. I have you as my portion. In other words, you're my land. You're my inheritance. You're my financial security. I can be safe with you because I have you. Asaph escaped bitterness, and I would so dearly hope and pray in the name of Jesus that if it's in your heart that you would escape it too. It binds people up for life. Years ago, there was a brutal, brutal murder here in Southern California. Fifteen years later, the state put a cold-blooded killer who killed a young man to death. I read the testimony of his mother, I believe it was in the L.A. Times, a long time ago. She exercised her right to watch the execution of her son's killer. She had waited and hoped and apparently hated for a very long time. On the way out, after she watched the man die, someone asked her, Ma'am, with all respect, after all this time, does this bring you any sense of closure? She said, No. I'll hate him every day until the day I die. And I was just a college student, but I remember reading that and being brokenhearted because I thought to myself, that day he didn't kill just her son, he killed her too. How hard is it to turn people over to God? It takes the grace of Jesus to do it. But Asaph says, you don't have to muddle your way through life and grit your teeth until relief comes. You have God holding you by the right hand this whole time, giving you counsel while He takes you to glory. In heaven, you have Him, and that truly, if, if you know Him, is all that you actually need. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, 
Not circumstances, not evil people changing. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge for this reason, that I may tell of all your works. What's Asaph telling you? This, commit yourself to being content because if you know Jesus, if you know the Lord, God Himself is yours forever. You may not get justice on this earth. A lot of people don't. If you allow that circumstance, if that is your standard that you will see justice done in your lifetime, you may miss the joy that God has for you for the rest of your life. By the time Asaph finished this psalm and said at the end, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works, your works, your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy, your justice, I'm going to tell everybody about it. I was this close to betraying the next generation by speaking enviously of the wicked and resentfully of God. But you saved me, God. You held on to me. I'm now making myself content because I have you, because, church, a bitter life can never tell of God's goodness. See, if your testimony is that Jesus saved you, but you've got a long list of grievances, there's no attraction in that. The attraction of Jesus Christ is when you say with gratitude, Jesus saved me, He's with me now in this dark valley, and He will take me someday home to glory. That's beautiful. That's hopeful. That's what it looks like to escape bitterness. How do you make the best use of a wisdom psalm like this? I'd like to invite you into it right now. You consciously open up your heart to God you think of the people that came to mind. Because unless everybody has been awesome to you or you've already resolved that bitterness, I guarantee you, as we walk through this psalm together, God brought circumstances and people to mind. Did He? What you do now is you turn them over to Him. You say, Lord, I heard the testimony of a bitter man written 3,000 years ago to teach me where to put my hope. I'm here to tell you about who hurt me, I'm here to tell you about my anger, my indignation, why I still don't understand it. I'm here to turn them over to you, forgive them as best I can, take them off the hook with me, leave them with you, and I'm telling you, you, Lord, are enough. How many times will you do that? It may take hundreds of times to continually take it to the Lord until relief and genuine heart change from the inside out takes root in your life and changes your perspective so that you can have a sweet life that can tell the goodness of your heavenly Father. Can we go to Him right now? Could I ask you to bow your head in prayer with me, please? Name those people. Name those circumstances. If you feel the anger, you feel the indignation, that's natural. It's not pleasant, but it's real. Give it to the Lord. Name them by person, by situation, and say, Lord, because you've forgiven me, I'm forgiving them. 
And if I pick them back up and take them out of your hands because I don't think justice is going to be done, I'll be back to give them to you again. There may be very possible in a group this size that some of you don't know the Lord at all. You're interested, you're close, you're curious, you're learning, but there's never time come a conscious moment in your life when you say, Jesus, I'm done with sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm turning away from the way I've lived, and I am asking you to save me. My invitation to you is that you'll do that. If you don't have the grace of Jesus in your life, none of this will happen. You'll take some feeble steps in your own strength, but you won't escape. God doesn't give people the spiritual power apart from His grace to do this difficult task. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, my specific invitation to you is that you will turn to Him and ask Him this morning, person to person. He's listening. He cares. He died for sin. He died to save sinners, that you would identify yourself as the needy one and say, Jesus, please save me. If you do that, all I ask is that you let us know using one of those connection cards. Two different kind of decisions, some to come to Jesus, others for Christians to give those hurtful, mean people to the Lord so that He will do what's right. Lord, I know some with great difficulty are reaching out to you right now to turn over that pain, turn those people over, give them grace. Save, Lord, anyone here who needs you, who does not know you as Savior, reach down, Lord, in your grace, change their heart, open their eyes. May they say that though they were among those who were lost, but you found them. We give you this offering, Lord, because you've told us over and over again to be generous. This is one way we show our trust and our love for you. May this offering be blessed and may it spread the good news of your grace everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.